Welcome back to another episode of Thoughts and Meditations on Christianity. Last time, we took a look at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, revealing the necessity of each for our salvation. Today, we look at one of the most controversial and despised doctrines of the faith. Doctrine number four, Jesus is the only way to heaven. We live in an increasingly subjective culture. When I say subjective, I mean that the world is moving in a direction that no longer believes in objective truths, truths that are unchanging, unwavering, and established. For example, our identity is no longer objective. Culture has dictated that someone can be a man one day and then identify as a woman the next. The world calls this transitioning. But that's what subjective truth does. It transitions. It never remains the same. Contrary to Robert Plant, the song doesn't remain the same. Not only are our identities being subjectified, but so is moral reasoning. According to culture, no longer can we look at an act and call it morally and definitively wrong. Everything is relevant, and thus the term moral relativism. Culture determines right and wrong. As Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, quote, You have your way. I have my way, and as for the right way, it does not exist, end quote. But as C.S. Lewis wrote, we may propagate subjective beliefs, but we really live as if truth is objective. He writes, quote, but the most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining that it's not fair. A nation may say treaties don't matter, but then next minute they spoil their case by saying that the particular treaty they want to break was an unfair one. But if treaties do not matter, and if there is no such thing as right and wrong, in other words, if there is no law of nature, no objective truth, what is the difference between a fair treaty and an unfair one? Had they not let the cat out of the bag and shown that whatever they say, they really know the law of nature just like anyone else? End quote. Listen to Ravi Zacharias explain the groundless foundation of subjective moral reasoning in this audio clip. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Let's leave aside Christianity and historical examples for a second. All night you guys have been grappling with issues like morality and, you know, what is right, what is wrong, and meaning. But my question is simply, why are you so afraid of subjective moral reasoning? I mean, do you think that we're all just going to start raping and pillaging just because we don't have a book to tell us what to do. I mean, are you afraid of that? Like, I'm not, because that's not going to happen. And that, yeah, Nazis were bad, but there were Christian Nazis and there were atheist Nazis. So I don't see... What are you so afraid of? Do you lock your door at night? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. You know, I hear what you're saying. Sounds very cavalier, though. My goodness. If we weren't afraid of all of this, we would not be in a national debt. The billions, China is secular. Uh, sorry? China is secular. Sorry? China is secular. That's right. What about, what does that mean? I mean, they're not raping and pillaging, and neither are we. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. Have you read what happened during the Red Guards Rebellion? Have you read what happened during the Boxer Rebellion? 
Do you know who has killed more people in the 20th century than China and Russia? 60 million apiece? Wow. It makes the Holocaust seem tame. The 20th century became the bloodiest century in history. And the reason it became the bloodiest century in history I can see is you could just see the weapons of our warfare were piling up and there was no guiding principle to take us anywhere. Now, in a perfect world, yes, we don't need to be afraid. Have you seen what happens in our courts of law where people supposedly love each other and all that comes about in hate and vitriol and damage? I don't think the question is fairly stated as what are you, are you afraid of? I'm just saying it is basically unlivable. That's, I didn't conclude that. An atheist like Jean-Paul Sartre concluded it. We killed more people in the 20th century than the previous 19 put together. And your question is, uh, what are we afraid of? The fact of the matter is, if morality is purely subjective, then you have absolutely nothing from stopping anybody for being a subjective moralist to choose to just zing one through your forehead and say, that's my answer. You know, how, do you, how do you stop that? Obviously, you don't believe that's the way it should be. No, neither do I. So it's not a case of what am I afraid of. It's a case of the fact that if you're willing to say to me that uh, moral reasoning can be purely subjective, I just say to you, Look out, you ain't seen nothing yet if everybody believed what you did. Do you know, uh, funny, interesting, when I was in, in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, Stalin eliminated 15 million of his own people. 15 million of his own people. And at the Center for Geopolitical Strategy, you know, they didn't want to even name his name and so on. His daughter Svetlana, made the comment, it is quoted both by Malcolm Muggeridge in his writings and by historian Paul Johnson in modern times. Svetlana was standing by the bedside of her father before he died. She said the last thing he did was clench his fist over the heavens one more time, put his head back on the pillow, and he was gone. This is his daughter raising the question, whatever got into my father to have that kind of hatred and hostility? And when 15 million were killed of his own people, it is interesting that the faculty members and the general who chatted with me there, my wife will tell you, sat around the table with tears in his eyes when he watched what had been done to his own country by his own leadership. So subjective morality would be very good if we all wanted to be nice people and live around each other without any uh, fear of each other. The reason you lock your doors and the reason we have our police and the reason we have our military and the reason we have our law courts is because when subjective morality becomes totally subjectivized, this is what happens in society. So it's a great idea, but I hope nobody absorbs it. Thank you. We go on to the next one there. Thank you. So why spend the beginning of this post talking about subjective identity and morality? Simply to make a point, our world believes in relativism. And this is why our next essential belief is under so much fire. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14.6 The exclusivity of the Christian gospel is appalling to most in the secular world, and even in Christian circles, many find this statement to be arrogant and untrue. Listen to this study done by Lifeway Research from 2012. 
They asked a question, if a person is sincerely seeking God, can he or she obtain eternal life through religions other than Christianity? 77% of Protestant pastors strongly disagreed with that statement. But even more startling, only 48% of adults who attend a Protestant church strongly disagreed with that statement. The question may be asked, how can one religion say that what they believe is true and everyone else is wrong? Isn't that narrow-minded? Let's talk about narrow-mindedness for a second. The biggest attack against Christianity is its exclusivity. Especially in America, this is a big problem. Not so much in the Middle East, where plurality makes no sense. The reality is, we all cling to exclusive truths every day of our lives. Scientific truth is narrow. Water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, no warmer, no colder. Mathematic truth is narrow. 5 plus 5 equals 10, not 9, not 11. Historical truth is narrow. JFK was killed in 1963, not 1962, and not 1964. Interesting side note, the study of history is now being infected by subjective truth and postmodern thought. There are now scholars who are getting traction saying that we can't know anything about the past unless someone who is still alive today was there. And as someone who has a BA in history, this pains me. Let's hear what Stuart McAllister with Robbie Zacharias International Ministries had to say. Quote, The notion that Christianity is offensively exclusive I find interesting because every view is exclusive. Reading the writings of Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens, who died tragically, their writings are exclusive, where they're basically saying that it's evil, that it's bad, that it's philosophically naive to believe in God. They are being extremely exclusive. They are saying that there is no other possible way. So why is it that when a Christian says, I believe in the truth, that they are dealt a different set of cards? End quote. He goes on to say, Quote, yes, Christianity is exclusive. The question is, do our arguments hold up? It doesn't make me arrogant to give my case. I have to present arguments. I have to present reasons. I have to listen to the objections, and I have to respond to those objections. But if I listen to the objections, if I consider the arguments, if I weigh the contradictory evidence, and I'm still persuaded, that's not arrogance. That's intellectual integrity. End quote. Tim Keller says, quote, If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that is, if he is the Son of God from heaven, if he really was bodily raised from the dead, and if he was our original creator, then of course there would just have to be one way to God, because our souls would need him, or they would shrivel eternally, just like your body needs food or it would shrivel. The fact is that my body needs food or it will shrivel. That's not narrow-minded. That's just the way it is. End quote. Christianity is no more exclusive than any other belief people have about the world, about religion, or about anything in general. Okay, so let's change gears from the apologetical to the theological. Let's look at John 14:6 again. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So why is this an essential belief and a core doctrine of the faith? Well, perhaps the easiest problem that would arise would be that Jesus is a liar otherwise. If we profess Christ and are placing our faith in Christ, are we to say that we're placing our faith in a liar? What good does a liar's death do for us on the cross? 
We saw last week that the perfect and sinless life of Jesus is just as essential to our salvation as his death and resurrection. Secondly, a question we must ask is, if we say that Jesus is not the only way, and perhaps even argue for the complete opposite, that every way leads to eternal bliss, then what's the point of missions? I would venture a guess that those who believe in the universality of salvation aren't too concerned with world missions, and why would they be? Missionary efforts only make sense if Jesus truly is the only way. If we come to the conclusion that John 14.6 isn't true, then we come to the conclusion that Matthew 28.18-20 isn't necessary either. See the problem? The exclusivity of the gospel is so central to the message of Jesus Christ. Without its exclusivity, the gospel is not a perfect singular plan of redemption from all eternity, but rather the sad story of one man who thought he was the focal point of all history, but was really just another blip in a long line of religious zealots. Let us consider the words of Peter in Acts 4. He's quoted as saying, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter echoed the words of the recently ascended Jesus. The words of Peter weren't dripping with arrogance, nor were they contrary to what his former teacher had uttered. Rather, they were the truth. Christians, with this knowledge, I urge you to not back down from proclaiming the hard truths of the gospel. Be filled with the boldness of the Holy Spirit as Peter and John were that day. Represent the name of Jesus honorably, upholding the words of God. Let not the secular world silence what you know to be true. In a world hell-bent on destroying the claims of Jesus Christ, take heed that you echo the words of Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Thanks for listening to this podcast. You can check me out on Twitter at 27 underscore bread underscore 91. Join me again next time as we try to understand the importance of the hypostatic union. The truth that Jesus is both fully God and fully man.